Hi, everybody. Welcome to my Friends with Wheels podcast. Today, I talk with Cassandra Evans, a, a disability studies professor at, at a university in New York City. She talks to me about the work that she teaches and the kind of research that she does to educate her students on disability-related topics. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I hope you find this insightful and and fascinating. Enjoy. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the disability community. Yeah, um, I, I grew up in California. I worked in community colleges, um, providing academic counseling for students with disabilities, as well as doing private vocational rehab for um, veterans. Sorry, I'm turning off my phone. For veterans uh, with disabilities. And I, I realized, you know, that, and this was many, many years ago when I first started, but there was this constant kind of um, attempt to fix people, to fix them and get them to go back to work more so with, you know, workers comp and vocational rehab counseling that I was doing. And the goals seemed really um, cookie cutter and somewhat, um, you know, like medicalized. There, there were constantly people um, that I worked with who felt pushed into trying to be retrained as soon as possible to get into occupations that maybe they didn't desire, but um, I don't know if you're familiar with how the voc rehab system works, but of course we wanna support people to go back to work. And I, and I did work with veterans and, and um, private citizens as well, but um, it just felt like something was missing. And I, I went to New York later for work and to work for the City University of New York. I'd always wanted to live there for a little time. And when I got there, I I found, I was wanting to do a doctorate and I found a doctorate in disability studies at Stony Brook University on Long Island, near where I lived. And I had never heard of that, but I was so excited because it really was, you know, a blend, an interdisciplinary doctoral uh, program that, spoke to work I had done in my master's in counseling, rehab counseling, and my master's in philosophy, in which I did teaching, you know, in ethics, medical ethics, um, general ethics, and kind of this look at what does it mean to be human, and who do we put in our moral community, and how shall we live? And so, I was accepted to the doctoral program at Stony Brook and started thinking about what my research question would be. And I didn't realize that I was situated 
in the ecology on Long Island of the four largest institutions, state-run institutions in the world at one time. You know, back then, um, years, 100 years ago until only recently, I guess I would say 200, 300 years ago, we called them insane asylums, right? And um, it was just this strange coincidence that I was doing the doctoral work. I was very interested in mental health specifically, but that I was living and studying in the midst of these these large institutions, um, two of which had been demolished and two that were still standing. And so I started asking the question um, when I looked at how people were institutionalized and not just for mental health uh, disabilities, but people who had um, maybe CP, um, people who had drug and alcohol addictions, um, people who were women and maybe just were thought to be problematic or, you know, agitators, um, even women who had postpartum depression. So I was just fascinated with how there could be so many asylums in the world. And yet we, we've heard so, for so many years that we've deinstitutionalized people. So I started asking, is what we have now better? What is it that we have? And is what we have now better? So that's how I kind of came into disability studies and my specific research question and my doctoral work. Mm -hmm. Cool. So like, tell me a little bit about your research. What sort of things do you focus on? Yeah, um, so I, I, at that time, and I still am very interested in how was it to be institutionalized? What did that look like? How did it begin? Um, what were people's experiences? Because we still have so many people alive who were forced into institutions against their will. Um, and I'm very interested in their narrative, what brought them there, what they were told, um, and what internal, um, what labels they internalized or um, pushed back against. I'm interested in occupations, not the word necessarily that means what we do for a living for pay, but what we do with our time when we're not necessarily um, working for pay. So what were the occupations um, and way that people pass their time in institutions? And what was their transition like once they left institutions? Uh, I'm also very interested in what it means to um, be forced into taking medication. And I'm not anti-medication. It works for some people and it's um, everyone's choice. It might be necessary at certain times when people might be a harm to themselves or others. But what I found in my reading and in all of my interviews was that many, many, many people are forced onto medications that don't necessarily help or may do more long-term harm um, that they speak out against or ask to be altered or, you know, changed, and um, they're not necessarily taken seriously. So I really uh, used my, my 
research at that point um, to kind of be in conversation with some of my philosophical training about phenomenology you know what does it live what's the lived experience of someone who's been in an asylum forced into um a chemical straitjacket, if you will and then what does life look like on the outside um as they've transitioned into more community-based mental health are people no longer institutionalized or are we now doing what someone like Ben Liat Moshe will say is a trans institutionalization, right? Going from larger asylums into smaller community-based sites that are still sites of containment. And um, so I'm interested in that. And then I'm very interested in trauma and how trauma informs and exacerbates disabilities that people already have and how trauma can um, actually create disabilities for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So you also work um, with voice bearers. Um, like, could you elaborate on what, tell, oh, tell me a little bit about what that is and like voice, voice hearers, voice people, hearers, I'm sorry. Yeah. People who hear voices. So I'm, I'm very interested in that. And I have family members, um, who hear voices and I've worked with students and veterans who hear voices. And once I started, you know, narrowing down my research scope for the dissertation, and I was looking at asylum living and asylum commitment, and then asylum deinstitutionalization, I came across a lot of people who hear voices. And so many people that have that experience were also and are still also very heavily medicated. Um, and I think that it's such a, a misunderstood phenomenon. And I was really curious to know what, what alternatives are there to long-term institutionalization, to long-term, very, very heavy sedative medication. And I found my way to, um, there was a documentary called Healing Voices and um, some people on the East Coast out of Boston, Massachusetts that were starting a movement. And I believe it started in England, um, but to create workshops and support groups for people that hear voices, you know, kind of like an AA or an Al-Anon or any other support group, but until very recently, this had not been offered. You know, until very recently, if someone reported or disclosed that they heard voices or saw things, it was almost like an instant sentence for life. Mm -hmm. And we have now groups where people can go and talk about what voices they hear, how they might categorize this voice as helpful and that voice as 
not helpful and something that needs to be managed. And I, I'm very curious as to how we can keep that going and how um, we can help mitigate the negative stereotypes that surround, um, you know, those kind of diagnoses that, that were for so long and still are considered a life sentence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so how does race, ethnicity, and class intersect with disability? You know, what does that tell us about the stigma of disability and yeah. sort of the labeling that comes with that? Yeah. And so many of the people that I interviewed reported not using the word intersectionality, but using other words and stories about their journey, how much race, gender, sexuality intersected and impacted their experience. For example, um, you know, on Long Island, where I interviewed people, it's very hard to get around unless you have, you can afford a car. The bus system is not at all reliable. There's no trolleys out there. And most of the people that I interviewed are socioeconomically at a disadvantage because they've been institutionalized for years. They've been on medication. They may not have been able to work and they certainly can't afford to buy cars. And so you have the economic impact that intersects with the disability. Um, and then some people were um, Latinx, African-American, Puerto Rican, and they described to me very uh, experiences that also impacted negatively their their disability and and further exacerbated it. For example, um, someone living in a very small group home that I'd interviewed was an African-American woman who identified as gay, but was also transitioning um, to become a male. And they were not only dealing with, you know, managing the mental health issues, trying to stay compliant. And this was the word that was used, medication compliant um, in order to move up levels and have more freedom and responsibility in their household. These were things that they actually had to do and be marked off, you know, on a list by their social worker to be medication compliant, um, to show less and less uh, manifestations of hallucinations or, you know, whether those were visual or audio. Um, but they reported to me, you know, and along the way, stigma around, of course, their diagnosis, but stigma around being someone who was perceived as um, sexually different or um, a, a trans person. And, and this person said to me, you know, I'm dealing with the economic reality that I don't earn a lot of money and I don't, I can't afford a different home. Um, the reality that I am African-American and the reality that I'm transitioning, right? My gender. And so every day this person said, there's someone not just in the house that's another housemate, 
um, a resident maybe making fun of me or picking on me, but they said they felt even from staff that that was often the case. And not to mention, of course, outside community. Um, but if so, if you are someone who has a disability and you're impacted by economics and ethnicity, race, and gender or sexual preference, um, you can imagine how that just keeps getting compounded and makes navigating your world so much harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so what can be done to really reduce or eradicate the stigma of disability? Uh, what are some yeah. of the, you know, goals to, in order to like do that? How do you do that basically? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we've come really far. Disability studies as a field, as a recognized field is growing. And it's so exciting because I see more and more universities across the country offering disability studies minors, some disability studies majors. You know, now we have um, several PhDs in Canada, fewer PhDs in the United States. Um, unfortunately, the one that I went to, Stony Brook, lost its funding, so they no longer have that. Um, but I am really encouraged as I move about the country and I talk to people, other educators, and they have been introduced to um, person first language, you know, and this idea of being aware of what it means to have a disability and how the social model of disability is really impacting people. And, and um, there's there are community colleges here. I'm, I'm back in California now working remotely and I connect with former colleagues from years ago. And I see that you know their offices of accessibility are holding workshops for students and faculty to make them aware of these sorts of concepts. So I think it's possible. I think we're making a, a move. I mean, you know, the the shift is slow, but it is happening more quickly than I think, you know it has in the past. And I think that's key, you know, continuing to educate people, just like we're continuing to educate people about um, diversity and inclusion and knowing that people with disabilities need to be in that conversation too. You know, it's not just race, ethnicity, religion. It's also people with, with disabilities who have now been invited to that conversation. Yeah, I think it's so important to have those people in that in the in the as part of you know the larger community. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting, and to also recognize um, it's not just people without disabilities saying we should do this, but people with disabilities being on community boards, you know, um, being a part of the faculty who teach others. Um, again, promoting classes that could have, even if it, they just have a component of what is disability, like um, philosophy, right, is my my other area. I know that there are more philosophy of disability courses being offered. Um, so it, 
to answer your question, we need to keep continue. We need to continue to keep working. Um, but it's spreading. I know that it's spreading. So I'm excited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, everybody, that does it for today's episode of My Friends of Wheels podcast. Today, I talked with Cassandra Evans, a, a disability studies professor in New York City, about the work that she teach, about the work that she does as a professor in order to teach students the concepts about disability-related topics and themes and some of the research that she does in in the disability studies realm. I found this conversation fascinating, and I hope you did too. Anyway, feel free to tune into other episodes as, as they are forthcoming, and I hope you will enjoy. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye-bye, everyone.